Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. And this is Mike Gavigan. And today we're going to be taking an in-depth look at the Kiss album, Lick It Up. Before we do that, we like to play a song or two or three uh, that we've each been involved in to let you know what we've been up to. So, uh, John, we'll start with you. Let's try Poison off of the Undesirables and Anarchists album. Oh, 
Cause you can't stop me now No, 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 baby, I'm caught in a tailspin But I know how it's gonna end Are you gonna be there to pick up the pieces? Blessings track uh, again, uh, since uh, some of us know that we lost uh, one of the greats a uh, week and a half ago, uh, LaVon Barnett Setal. Uh, she passed away due to cancer. And one of my favorite tracks from the Blessings Shipwrecked album, or CD as a matter of fact, um, is a song called uh, Ran Out of Teardrops. Uh, and she does a great uh, background vocal on that track. So I'd like to go with the Blessings Ran Out of Teardrops in honor of LaVon. <laughs>
Perfect. And I'm going to play uh, Up, Up, and Away with 4EJ again, because that features our guest last week, Kevin Valentine on drums. And uh, I'm working on a video for that right now, actually.
All right, without further ado, Kiss come off the Creatures of the Night tour, and they immediately jump into the studio for a couple of months to record yet again with producer Michael James Jackson, what will become their first album, Taking Off the Makeup, Lick It Up. So just in general, um, much more balanced production on this album, uh, much less emphasis on the drums. Um, you know, uh, I remember a quote from Paul Stanley uh, around this time about the production where he said that it's, uh, I think Gene said it was a much more balanced meal. And I think that's kind of what they were alluding to. Uh, and, and Paul said about the production, it sounds like one big guitar, so, which means it sounds <laughs> like me, which is what we've been going for all along. Uh, and, and the funny thing about that is I know what he's talking about. Like all of the guitars on this album are spread stereo. So there's not a whole lot of definition in terms of the guitar parts. A lot of the songs sound like there's one rhythm guitar part driving mm -hmm. the song to spread left and right. And then there's overdubs and accents and things happening. But, you know, compared to earlier Kiss albums, uh, it's a bit of a wash in terms of the, you know, stereo panning of the guitars. Yeah, there's definitely yeah less of the the, uh, the separation, if you will. If you go back to the first album, and obviously there's you know the sort of left and right panned, and their live albums are left and right panned. Um, yeah, but for sure, like it's the only, the only time the guitars sort of stand out or, or punch out, or when there's you know a solo, like you said, or, or an accent. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Paul said if this album didn't hit and hit big, he was going to hang it up and uh, wow. retire. So this was kind of a make or break album for them. Um, he also was been quoted as saying he doesn't think it's as good as Creatures, that um, he thought people <laughs> heard with their eyes and they gave it more attention simply because they took off the makeup. And we'll get into all that um, as, we, as we go, I suppose. But uh, any other general thoughts about the album before we dive in track by track? It's a, definitely a chunk of chunk of album. The way that the guitars are played and so forth, it's a lot heavier. Um, you know what I mean? There's not a lot of definition in what the guitars do. You know, there are some stuff I'll talk about later about the way the guitar sounds. But yeah, the, a lot of it sort of sounds, each song sounds very similar in terms of the way that it's constructed, which, you know, again, we'll talk about later. This is a record where there were no, it was basically written by the, the band. There were no outside writers. Right. No outside writers. And with one exception, as far as I know, only one outside player on one track. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that's a good point. In general, this is much more of a full band album than they have made, both in terms of the writing and the playing in quite some time. And can I also bring up too, um, I know there's always been speculation about whether or not there was a quote unquote uh, makeup cover of the record and was that indeed just the Japanese release that used like Elder and Creatures era photos for the album cover? I believe so yeah there's a Japanese version where they just used old makeup photos um you know my argument is this is actually the best of the non-makeup albums and I think the reason why it is is because it was recorded with the intention of having the makeup on and uh, there's a great quote from Oscar Wilde where he says, uh, 
and I might be getting a slightly wrong here, but the general gist of it is give a man a mask and he'll tell you the truth, right? Mm. They were writing from their personas, this album. And mm. it wasn't until the next album when they knew it was going to be without makeup that I think Gene started getting a little lost in terms of, you know, the types of songs he was writing. Yeah, yeah, very good point. And too, if we could just, you know, just go back, I mean, I mean, when this, this record came out, because obviously they, they unmasked on MTV, I think it was on like September 18th, 1983. And I think they released the album either that day or a few days later. Yeah. Um, but I, I specifically remember going to what was a national record mart in Monroeville Mall in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and looking at the record and going to you know, the, the wall where the records were. And you know, in the old days, it would be displayed. It'd be a wall of LPs, right? Yeah. I remember there was like a line of rocker dudes just kind of looking at the you know the wall of albums going okay well you know that's that's Gene obviously with a tongue sticking out and that's Paul and you know that's Eric and is that a it was like a debate on who was who like it was our first time really seeing because I didn't see the MTV unmasking because I didn't have MTV at the time mm. so when the album came out this is my first time seeing them without the makeup and it was just funny yeah. to know that you know in the old days you could be there with a bunch of guys and everybody's kind of debating on who's who because this was really a revealing moment. Uh, when when the record came out and you, you go to your local record store and, and see it and pick it up for the first time. Yeah, it's it's hard to kind of overestimate the cultural impact of that. Although, you know, there had been photos that had been leaked from around the elder era that had showed up on like Entertainment Tonight and things like that. Gene and Paul hadn't been quite as uh, um, serious about not getting their pictures taken without makeup as they were in the earlier days. Um, but as a publicity move, the big reveal on MTV definitely uh, worked worked and worked well for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, to the point where I think uh, one of the videos, I believe it was All Hills Breaking Loose, uh, was nominated for, I, th I think, Best Cinematography for Video, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, MTV Video Music Awards. And I get, it didn't win, but at least it was nominated. So, you know, that's you know major impact when it comes to MTV exposure anyways. Yeah, yeah. And this is the first time that uh, we'll get into the videos, I guess, as we go by the songs. But yeah, both yeah. Lick, Lick It Up and All Hell's Breaking Loose had fairly significant uh, uh, play on MTV. And this album, you know, actually swept um, the uh, awards for Kerrang! I think Kiss won for Best Band, Best Album, Best Song. Um, wow. You know. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about the, the tour and all that too. I actually have a, I have a pretty good story about this tour. So. Good. Okay, good. <laughs> and then also, we should also point out too, that this is basically Vinnie Vincent's first record with the band where he is now a full-time member of the band, uh, albeit you know, without a signed contract, uh, but he's yes. you know, a full member of the band and, you know, obviously things get rocky on the tour and we'll probably get into that too. But uh, nonetheless, you know, when you got a guy that's, you know, co-writing eight out of the 10 records on the album, um, you know, he's a big influence, you know, when it comes to the songwriting on this record and, you know, good for him. And he's, you know, basically trying to find his place within Kiss, which might not be the easiest thing to do as, as we might find out. So. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Vinny's all over this album and, you know, arguably those eight songs are, you know, the strongest songs on the album. So, you know, regardless of what your opinion may be of his lead playing, there's no arguing with him as a songwriter. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Um, okay, so song one, Exciter. 
It, uh, the only notes I have, I mean, I like the song a lot. I mean, it's a little, you know, it's, it's a basic song about sex or whatever. There's nothing that really stands out lyrically to me, but um, the, it's, the guitar sounds like an airplane a lot. And the bass actually doubles the drums, which isn't something a lot of they, you know what I mean? In a lot of these later uh, heavy metal or glam metal things um, go on with the bass. But it, it definitely, I mean, I kept feeling like I sounded like the second half of the solo literally sounds like an airplane flying around. Like the, the first half of the solo is very high, but then the next one sounds literally like a dive bomber coming in and out. And that's actually what stood out to me the most in the song was the soloing. And I, I don't know who played on that, whether that was Vinny or if it was Paul, but. Um, Actually, that Rick. was Rick Derringer. Oh, that's the famous Rick Derringer story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, what band was he from? From uh, Well, his own, he was like a I solo, uh, you know, rock okay. and roll, Hoochie Coo and, right? There you go. Okay. He, he also played with Edgar Winter. Um, and he apparently had, had known, you know, the, the Kiss guys from the old days because there were the guitar players we mentioned, like Binky Phillips. And I guess it was, it was a big you know, New York scene with the guitar players and da-da-da. And Rick was part of that, you know. Um, so I guess, I, I don't know how they brought him into the, to the fold and how that worked out. But he, supposedly it's confirmed that that's him on the... Uh, the solo section of the song. I particularly think that the end licks, when it gets to the end of the song, there's this really fast descending licks. That to me sounds more like Vinny than anybody. But when it comes to the solo, I could hear that being somebody else other than Vinny. Yeah, and another uh, fact that might make you write about that that really fast flurry at the, at the end of the song is that exact same flurry exists in the demo for the song. So, uh, okay. Yeah, okay. Well, wait, now, in that case, the demo for the song, did um, I didn't find that. There was apparently um, a demo that was under the title of You, right? You know, the, the word, you know, U-Y-O-U. So Vinny had said that, you know, the song was originally titled You. Was that the demo that you heard or? Uh, I think the demo that I heard had no lyrics. So I, whatever oh. it was titled, it was just the instrumental, yeah. Um, okay. You know, musically, uh, starting off with that that um, harmonic flange uh, kind of yeah, the whammy bar thing, yeah. Thing. Well, no, the that thing reminds me of the. There we go. That reminds me of the introduction to Black Dog on Led Zeppelin Four, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's just a lick that has nothing to do with the song, but just sort of sets the mood and then goes into it. Um, so then they go into that first riff, which mm -hmm. when they played at the beginning, um, and I can't believe I've never talked about this in all the episodes we've done. So this is the episode <laughs> we're going to talk about this. Okay. All right. Um, and when they play the riff at the beginning, it, it goes, uh, here, could you play the very beginning of the riff? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's right. So what that is, and they is okay. So they it's basically a where they establish the the first part of the riff. B where they play a variation of the riff. A again where they reestablish the riff and see where they do a turnaround, right? Yeah. And that, that whole concept, and the key is that the turnaround has to be able, able to go back into the riff 
or back into the verse. So it's usually done with a different tonality. But that whole idea is a, a classic songwriting technique that Kiss uses in a lot of songs and a lot of other bands use. But basically it's A theme, B variation of theme, A reiteration of theme, C counter theme, mm -hmm. right? And you find mm -hmm. that in classical music. In rock and roll though, it's really derived from the 12 bar blues because mm -hmm. the accompaniment of the 12 bar blues, if you're in A, you establish the, the rhythm on A. You go up to D, that's the, the variation. The one, you go four, back, five, yeah. You go back to A, right? Then E, D, A, but da dum <laughs> that's the turnaround. Right. right. Now, oh, wow. So now, so true, yeah. Let's just take a bunch of random Kiss songs, okay? Okay. <laughs> God of Thunder. Dun 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 dun. Theme. Dun 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 dun. Yeah. Variation. Dun 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 dun. Theme again. Dun 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 dun. Counter theme, right? Um, Rocket Ride. The main riff to Rocket Ride. Play that, Mike. Exact same thing. Theme, variation, theme, hmm. counter theme. Shout at the devil, same thing. Right? Um, and it shows up a couple of times. I mean, it's on almost every Kiss album. Um, and it shows up at least a couple of times on this album. It's, it's in Exciter, and it's also in the main riff for Young and Wasted. Okay, so that was the first thing that I, I wanted to get to, because I, I, I should have mentioned that perhaps on earlier shows, and, and I didn't. It, it, the song musically reminds me, it's kind of a combination of Creatures of the Night and The Oath. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, Same straight ahead, right, chugga-chugga sound, yeah. Yeah, but there's a whole section, much like Creatures of the Night, there's a whole section that sets up the solo, right. you know, which is kind of unusual for them to do that. Yeah, and that, that's like a, I call that a bridge. I mean, it's, it's badass because those core changes are great. They add like the the, you know, the F on the, the B flat chord, which is really cool. F on the, the bass for the B flat chord. It's a great bridge. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, lyrically, you know, I, I think this is the first time Paul has sort of uh, done the the angel or angelic seducer thing, right? Um, <laughs> you know, sent from above, power of love right. in my hand, surrender to me, and I'll guarantee you'll pray that the night never ends. Um, I kept hearing, I kept hearing death from above. Probably because oh. I was so obsessed with the sound of airplanes of this song when I can uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh no, another dive bomb. Yeah, look out. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. That's what I kept taking it as. I mean, I thought they had like written this whole thing around themes of airplanes, but right, right, right. Um, there's a there's another song. Uh, oh, uh, save yourself, Michael Shanker. Yeah, there's a song called Save Yourself that has kind of a similar lyric theme too from the 80s where it's, uh, you know, I have come to take your soul, save yourself, a night with me is all it takes to save yourself. You know, this whole, the whole idea of the angelic God descending from above to uh, set, the, set the woman free, if you will. Okay, good deal. 
Uh, for me, obviously, you, you cover the fact that it's basically a combo of uh, creatures and the oath, which is a, a great point. Um, and now I'm going to research to see what the demo was that was titled You. I'd like to see if that's the same thing that you might have heard. Yeah. Um, and I read something funny, too, about uh, Rick Derringer when it came to uh, direction he was given on you know how to play the guitar solo. And he said, you know, in terms of direction, you know, they, meaning Gene and Paul, probably said, just go crazy. <laughs> which when you listen to the rest of the solos on this record i'm not surprised that that was you know the guidance that they provided yeah yeah an interesting note about the song they didn't really play it that much on the tour but they did bust it out at least one time because i had a bootleg uh from this tour where they played it but they played like like a two-minute version of it it was like verse chorus verse chorus and out well, you know what, Dave? I did some research on that. Apparently, they played it more so on the European leg of the tour, which is the first half of the tour. And then when they got to the, the United States for the, or North American tour, uh, they played it sporadically, and they would interchange that with I Still Love You. So when you and I, and, and obviously John, too, saw this show on March 4th, 1984 in Pittsburgh, um, they didn't play it. They played I Still Love You. But there were shows on the North American part of the tour where they would play the song occasionally. Oh, hmm. interesting. Okay. All right, next song, Not For The Innocent. Uh, I like I like the lyrics, actually. I spit in the hangman's face and hung him in his noose, tan your hide, rip your flesh off your bone. It's got a cool riff. This is the angriest I've decided that I've seen Gene this album. I don't know if this is him actually getting over, breaking up with whoever he broke up with. But it uh, the, this whole album, every song he sings comes out incredibly angry, particularly this Not For The Innocent. Um, I mean, it definitely has like a, you know, a swagger to it, lock up your daughters, release the beast within and, you know, that kind of stuff. But um, his vocal delivery and the lyrics he's using tend to be a lot heavier on this album. Starting even, I'd say, with uh, Creatures of the Night, but here, particularly, not, not for the innocent, and then his other one, Dance on Your Face. You know, he's definitely like an angry, young and wasted. He's, he's an angry dude in this, uh, this album. Um, and I, I like that about him. Um, and I guess there's really not much more. I mean, I like the, I, I wrote down here, I like the, it's a cool riff. Um, but it was the, I spit in the hangman's face and, you know, and I, I love his delivery, you know, not for the innocent. It's so heavy, you know, it's like, super, yeah. Super, yeah. Um, so. Yeah. That's my favorite line on, in the song. You know, one of my favorite lines on the album is I spit the hangman in his face and hung him with his noose. Yeah. That's a great um, line. <laughs> it is a great line. And the, and the rest of the lyrics, I hate to say it are pretty re cliche ridden. You know what I mean? Yeah. But that those two tan your hide, rip the flesh off your bone, and I spit on the hangman. Those are great lines. I just wish he had taken an extra week and written some other cool stuff. Well, also we're here for the slaughter, kick you when you're down. Yeah. You know, okay. It's hard to hear those lyrics and not think that they were talking in some sense about how they had been treated, right? Because there were lots of people in the rock press and and that, and critics were ready to write them off at this point as their careers having been over. Yeah, no, no I have nothing more to add, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I definitely could take that. But again, it's definitely like, I don't know, man, like his lyrics become so much more in your face at this point. I don't know, and his delivery is so much grittier. You know what I mean? Yeah. It sounds like he's gargling through gravel when he's singing these things, you know, he's so intense about it. Whereas in earlier albums, he never seemed, even on his solo album, he doesn't seem to be like 
I don't know if he's getting older and his voice is getting more wrecked or whatever, but this is, you know, sort of the angriest I've seen it. Do you, I mean, is there anything about like him being coached vocally by people to do things or how many takes it took for him to get certain tracks, that kind of stuff? You know, I don't know. I would say that, um, that Michael James Jackson definitely got great vocal performances out of both Gene and Paul on this record. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are moments where their, their vocals just soar. Um, yeah. You know, um, it's interesting. The demo for this song uh, has Paul singing the pre-chorus and the chorus. Oh. And uh, if you listen to it and they, they kind of do that a lot on this album. I'm glad that they didn't do it in the final version of this song. Cause I think it, it's a lot stronger being exclusively a Gene song. Yeah. Yeah, and in terms of the pacing of the record, I mean, it's a great way to introduce, you know, Gene's contributions to this record. I mean, it's a really strong song. Um, and to bolster John's point about that main riff, I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you've got riffs. It, it's so hard to make a two-note riff, you know, sound so strong. You have, like, things like, you know, I Will Follow from U2, right? I mean, which sounds huge, right? Well, in this case, this is like the flatted fifth version of that. Wait. Right. But it sounds so huge on the record. I mean, that, you know, my God, you know, but, you know, like you said, it, it's it definitely vocally, um, you know, here's a, a band where you know, they've been recording albums. I think this is their 11th studio record. Um, yep. and, and how often do bands progress where they, you know, their vocals become stronger in a way, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I think in this case, you got Paul's vocals are exceptionally strong and so are Gene's, but also keep in mind too, that the 70s Kiss records were all recorded a half a step down, whereas I think this is the second record now, uh, other than Creatures, where I think all the songs on this record are recorded in 440. They're not recorded a half step down. Mm. So really? not only are they singing higher and stronger, but they're also singing in what essentially is a tuning or a key that's a half step higher than what they were doing you know, in the de decade previous. Yeah, uh -huh. good, good point. Um, but you know, my final comments on, on the song are really, you know, I think just that you know when not only is that main riff so great but when the, the bass and drums come in that, that bottom end is there it's like dun, 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 dun. Yep. it's so solid um and i love how you know sort of the you know the lyrics sort of fit the you know the demon sort of character even though you know they would be unmasked for the record um and then also you have those uh, classic his turnarounds like the gdda <laughs> You know, and the solo, the guitar solo is cranked. I mean, you can, there's like feedback at the very end of the guitar solo. You can hear it's like the guitar is really just like dying <laughs> as he's playing the thing. It's it's great, you know. I mean, it's funny you yeah. it's funny you bring up that turnaround because we pointed out last week that 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 turnaround that dick down dick down turnaround yeah. is all over in practically every song on Creatures, and it and it makes some appearances here too. Um, it really became a, a stylistic motif for the band. I was thinking about that this week. In some ways, that turnaround is really just a slight variation of oh. album one, song one, strutter, but they play it straight. They, they oh. instead of, you know, they just go dun, 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 and it becomes yeah. dun, 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 right? Well, you know what, Dave, too? It's also like uh, Over the Hills and Far Away. <laughs> Right. Well, that's that. That's yeah. that argument that silence is just as powerful as 
noise. You know what I mean? That like the, yeah. the the it becomes a heavier hitter when there's that split second of silence between it. You know what I mean? Well, especially when you are writing songs that are going to be played in arenas, right? Because yeah. arenas themselves are such the sound in arenas is usually so echoey and cavernous. You know, you can always tell when there's a, an opening band that's written all of their songs, <laughs> you know, used to hearing how those songs sound in clubs. And then mm -hmm. they, they ascend to the level of playing in arenas and it affects the way they approach songwriting and how they write songs. And nine times out of 10, those bands start putting more space in the songs because mm -hmm. they realize, ah, this type of song sounds better in, a, in mm -hmm. a place like this. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of times they're writing the songs and sound checks in these large venues. So, yeah. you know, if it comes a wall of, of noise, you know, or, or, you know, no space, then what, what do you have? You know, it's going to just wash over people. So, um, but, you know, I, I love the fact that, you know, Gene also in this song lyrically, you know, refers to, you know, no tongue can lick me clean, which is, you know, yes. Funny, you know, considering, the, you know, the cover and the fact that he's still being Gene the demon and sticking out the tongue on the, on the cover. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, Moving on, I guess, then to lick it up, speaking of tongues. Yes. Right. So again, just with the title of the album, the title of the song, you have this kind of classic kiss triple pun where Gene being known for the tongue and then, you know, cunnilingus and fellatio and being the sexual act and then the idea of a band playing licks and then the pun on the words, live it up, lick it up, <laughs> you know, it, 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 yeah, they're 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 they got a lot of balls in the air here with the wordplay. <laughs> I remember when that song came out. I remember thinking, how can they say that on the radio? That's dirty. Yeah. I mean, I like even I knew it at fourteen or thirteen or whatever. I just um, I immediately jumped to the the double entendre. The you know what I mean? Um, I just assumed it was about oral sex. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's funny too because this is all post you know Spinal Tap. This is all past, you know, you know, lick my love right. pump and, you know, smell the glove. And somehow they're still selling records. And it's become one of their biggest selling records in, in, you know, in terms of the 80s right. you know, I, career. Thinking like, how can anybody take him seriously with a song like that? And yet it was a great song. The only thing about this song, the, this version of this song, mm -hmm. is that I think it's held back a little bit. Uh, it sounds a little tame compared to the way it sounded on the demo and the way it sounded when they played it live on the tour. Um, because mm, okay. I, you know, I think Kevin was right. I think Creatures was probably recorded to a click. I think Lick It Up is probably recorded to a click, and that this is not a song that benefits from being recorded to a click. If you listen to the demo, yeah. it's got a lot more kind of slade like, you know, yeah, it definitely has a nice mid tempo feel to it. The doom, 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 doom. yeah, uh huh, yeah, I don't and really it, mind that though, but I, I hear what you're saying. Well, it also, it becomes much more of the chorus itself becomes much more of kind of like, almost like a, a tent revival kind of, you know, mm -hmm. uh, like hip, um, you know, black church kind of singing chorus. Um, mm -hmm. Interesting thing about the chorus here. So, you know, the, the lead melody note that Paul is singing and lick it up is BBA. And he's singing that over D, D, A, which yeah. makes it kind of um, like a jazz chord. And, you know, it, it's, 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 um, 
it's kind of dissonant for for rock and roll for him to be singing mm. that, that note over mm -hmm. the chorus um but it works obviously i mean it, it's it sounds great um mm. this this song became you know a concert staple and uh it's actually evolved into several different iterations over time as they've played this where they now incorporate the who won't get fooled again and you know mm. um there's a little lyric change between the demo and the final version on this album. The opening line was originally, um, don't try to wait until you know me better, which again, sounds a little rapey. So yeah. <laughs> probably yeah. better that it changed it to, I don't want to yeah. wait until I know yeah. you better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, got woke. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Uh, yeah. Well, that, I mean, the whole song is like, I mean, I remember hearing these songs and like asking girls and being like, how can you listen? To I mean, do you like these songs? You know, that kind of stuff. And they're like, yeah, it's pretty cool. And I'm like, but, but it's like, I don't know. It, they, they just seem so, you know, male power fantasy. You know what I mean? And yet they had female fans. You know what I mean? That were yeah. just going into the whatever. But, yeah. Well, you know, I, mean, I believe me, I, you know, I know girls that were listening to this album in the heartland, teenage girls that said, you know, you got to live your life like you're on vacation. And they said, sign me up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, interesting back and forth between Gene and Paul on the come on, come on. Yeah. I don't, think, I don't think they do that live anymore. Unfortunately, I think they dropped that, but um yeah, they dropped that for sure. But I wonder, always wondered uh, as a kid, even till this day, if that's not uh, Paul and Vinny doing uh, the A and B vocals. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it. I don't know. It could be. It could be the you know Gene or Vinny. I don't know. It sounds like it's Gene to me. Um, in the video, okay. it's definitely Gene. Oh, um, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And from a production standpoint, it's difficult to record two vocalists doing something like a back and forth like that. Um, especially when, when Paul has a lot more power behind his voice than Gene does. And to make, make those two sound equal in terms of compression and like they're in the same room and they're, you know, cause I've, I've, I've struggled with that myself. And if you listen to like, even a producer on the level of Bob Ezrin, you know, you can hear the, the problem in say, God gave rock and roll to you. Um, yeah. and Michael James Jackson nails it here. You know, funny to that point too, Dave, is, you know, it'd be great to know, you know, it's almost, if, if Kiss would, you know, record a record, you know, with Michael James Jackson these days, what would it sound like? You know, it'd probably sound really great. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, he's definitely on my short list of producers. If they ever made another album, I would love to have them work with him again. Yeah. yeah and, and to your point too about, you know, the, uh, the, the chorus line where, you know, Paul's main vocal line is, is a B to an A over, you know, you know, the, um, you know the G A D chords. That's true. Those are. You know, there's your your D, D chord. And, you know, but yeah, that is definitely you know granted with a lot of distortion. You know, more jazzy type. Uh, you know, arrangement and chords. Yeah, and there's also just a hint of the little existentialist Paul in the lyrics when he says, "It's only right now." You know. Um, <laughs> right here right now on the on the latest album you know he he goes back to that um there's there was a while when he was singing this live 
on on the Look It Up tour and Animalize tour, where he would play with that line and he would make it. It's only right. It's only right. It's only right uh, now. You know, which I yeah. thought was kind of an interesting variation too. And to you know, you mentioned uh, that this is probably recorded to a click. I mean, for sure, that I think in a positive way helps to emphasize Paul's you know rhythmic style because that chugging rhythm is doom, 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 doom. it's so Paul Stanley sort of like in the pocket you know rhythm playing um, and that comes across in a cool way and there's an interesting triplet delay on the drums that yeah thing happening there if you listen in headphones it really stands out uh, that gives the whole song just like a really kind of badass swagger mm -hmm. yes you know and also too it, 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 this is you know what's 83 this is 83? Yeah, 1983. So this is in the days of, you know, new wave of British heavy metal and, he you know, heavy metal in the U.S. and, you know, guitar slingers and, you know, people doing ripping guitar solos. Well, here's, you know, essentially Vinnie Vincent's intro to the world as the official member of KISS. I'm the new lead guitar player and here's a guitar solo. Right. And it's not even a solo. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, all right. Well, thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's more like really a bridge functionally than a solo. Yeah, um, but yeah, but I wonder too where they came up with the arrangement later on. On I think because I don't think they did a version of this on the Lick It Up tour, but I know definitely an analyzed tour they added a solo section over the the, the verse you know chords you know for yeah. Bruce to play on. I don't know if they, I'm not quite sure if they did the same thing for Vinny on, on the Lick It Up tour, but nonetheless, um, you know, you know, point being, you know. You know, they really could have given the guy a shot saying, okay, here's your chance <laughs> to shine, you know. But anyhow, if you listen to the rest of the record, you get your share of soloing, we'll say that and, and let it go. So, yeah, for some reason during this period, both on, you know, I Love It Loud and Lick It Up and Heaven's on Fire, the, the main singles didn't really have real guitar solos. They were at, yeah. at best just incredibly minimalistic. I don't know if that was a commercial decision that they somehow thought that you know on creatures i could see it being well we don't know who's going to be in the band so we you know should probably have a solo here that paul can handle worst case scenario yeah but at the same time too from a songwriting perspective i mean if you you know somebody presented you this song dave and said okay you give me a guitar solo over this section I mean, what would you do yeah does, does it really fit does it need it maybe not true true good point you don't and, yeah, you know, stinking solo. Yeah, <laughs> take it easy. Uh, did you? Did you? Have you guys heard this about um, Vinny uh, presenting these song ideas to Gene and Paul? No. Um, I, I I just read this today. I guess apparently um, Vinny went to Paul and said, "Hey, I've got an idea for a song. This is a real winner. It could be the single." Um, and apparently Paul didn't seem to be too interested in it. So Vinny goes and he presents it to Gene, and Gene says, "Hey, that's a great idea. You should play it for Paul." And Vinny says, I already did. And I don't think it, it clicked with Paul. <laughs> then a week later, Paul he comes to Vinny and says, hey, we got any ideas for a song? We, we need a single. And apparently Vinny represented the idea for Lick It Up to him. But he didn't tell him that he already presented the song to him. And Paul shot it down. So then Paul said, God, that's a great idea. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, talk about the insanity. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, you read all these stories about how difficult Vinny was to deal with. Yeah, but like put a guy in a situation like I'm a good songwriter and I got these ideas and then uh, to be thrown in that merry-go-round of you know whoa you know who's on first I don't know on third base you know what the hell well going yeah on here? I mean that whole uh, how the sausage gets made I mean you could totally I totally see Vinny's point of view 
in some of this stuff. I mean, you know, I, you see all the interviews from Paul and Gene about what an a-hole Vinny was, but I mean, if he's writing eight of those songs and they're not making him a full-fledged member of the band, um, that's pretty jive. I could see how that would make you kind of angry, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, Eric Carr joins the band and he gets a new sports car and, you know, yeah. and <laughs> Vinny's on a, a salary, basically, like a weekly salary. So yeah, you know, I, I get it. Um, but Vinny also engages in some other behavior uh, throughout yeah. the course of this tour that I also understand from their perspective why it was ultimately unacceptable for them. What, yeah. extra long solos? Well, yeah, playing yeah. so also like simply refusing to stop playing the solos when the yeah. time limit was up. And yeah, I mean, obviously that's not going to pass so muster. Well yeah, yeah. What's the, the upper yeah. level management is going to have an issue with that. Yeah, you got to talk yeah. to. So, what's the what's the word on whether or not Vinnie Vincent wanted to have a sex change? You guys have probably, um, you know, looking at him now that he's made some appearances recently, he seems like if you told me that he was undergoing some kind of hormone therapy or something, I would say that that seems plausible. There's a, no, no, nothing. I was just reading goofy things online or whatever. And, you know, so it, of course, this was in the comments section, so it can't even be real. But, or you know, it's not verified on anything else. But someone was like, yeah, Vinny wanted to have a sex change. You can, you know, he even looked into it and blah, blah, blah. And, I mean, of course, it's just a rumor. And I was just wondering if you guys had ever heard anything to back that up. Yeah, I mean, he's a deeply strange individual. But um, so, you know. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> no, I mean, it's fine. Yeah. I'm just I'm sort of interested. Yeah. Yeah. But in, just in terms of his you know, musical contributions, I mean, I've done you know, some of the research and we, I mentioned last week that you know, prior to this, and we didn't really get into this, you know, but he's done a lot of session work before the Kiss records. He had a band called Treasure yeah. uh, with Felix Kyle Larry from uh, The Rascals and he did session work with Dan Hartman. I mean, but it's he was, funny. Uh, he was also a session guitar player on Happy Days, the TV series. What? That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, I don't know. I, I feel, yeah. I mean, I totally see his point of view. I mean, it could be argued that he helped reinvigorate Kiss, but I mean, I could also see Paul and Jeans, you know, there'd be no Vinnie Vincent in Kiss if there was no Kiss, but still, I mean, I don't know. But I, I, the reason I bring that up is, you know, you read all these stories about, you know, Vinnie having to be sort of, you know, constrained and held back and he had to be controlled and, you know, his guitar playing is out of control and, you know, they comp these solos and da da da. Well, if you listen to all the session work, I mean, he's basically playing like, you know, Stratocaster Fender type guitars. He's not doing all these blistering leads. He's not doing all these crazy chord changes. He's not doing any you know, flat fifths, you know, in, in terms of writing style. It's a whole different style. It's almost like it's a completely different kind of guitar player until he got in Kiss. And then he just went from like, you know, one to 10 and boom, he's like this. Yeah. You know, like, how do you grow that that quickly? Or were you just being, were you, you know, what, the reason I bring it up is, if Vinny's going to complain or, you know, raise issue with the fact that he was held back and kissed and say that, you know, lick it up, really just, you know, showcase, you know, 25% of what I could do on guitar. Um, you know, he was held way back on the session stuff that he did prior to kiss. So, you know, if anything, you think he'd be extremely proud of what he did and putting his stamp as big as it was on this record, considering what he had done previously, which sounds almost like another guitar player completely. Yeah. It doesn't sound like the same guy. Right. I mean, he definitely had the uh, ability to play tastefully as a session musician. Yeah. Um, 
but I think he wanted to be taken seriously in the same league as guys like Eddie Van Halen and Randy Rhodes and, and, and people like that. Um, but, you know, if Gene and Paul have one talent, it is taking the best of what other talented people have to offer and utilizing it uh, in, in the best possible way. I mean, there are lots of guys that have worked with Kiss and worked on Kiss albums that have then you know, complained about how they were restricted by Gene and Paul. And then as soon as they were free to go off on their own and do what they <laughs> wanted to do, make you think, well, thank God Gene and Paul were yeah. restricting them because Jesus, you know, I mean, the only guy that, that I wouldn't say that about is Ace. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because look at you know albums like uh, White Tiger, which is Mark St. John's band. I mean, you know, Bruce has obviously done some interesting stuff, on, you know, as an artist later on. But yeah, but when it comes to Vinny, I just I find it interesting that you know here's a here's basically it, it, it just goes from you know zero to sixty with his yeah. guitar playing, and it, it showcases his songwriting talent. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, I guess if I contribute all these ideas to this album, you know, I was looking at you know the leaders of the band, I would think you know. Sure, maybe I deserve a little more credit, but at the same time, you can bite off more than you can chew with trying to get credit and financial compensation. Sometimes you've got to do the job and put the nose at the grindstone. And move yeah, on, exactly. You know? hey, right. It's new guy at the job gets the shaft. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's, once no one gives you the code for the copier. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, moving on. Young and wasted. Again, totally gritty vocal from Gene. Again, another super great angry song. Um, not as about being on drugs as I thought it was. I thought it was mostly about being, you know, just about being young and wasted. Uh, then I, I started actually listening to the lyrics and I, I finally just looked them up. And aside from the, there is a line, you got a monkey running up and down your back. I don't really think it's about drugs. I think it's about taking risks as a child, as a, as a kid, you know what I mean? Even in life, um, because you're so driven to do something with your life. I mean, I almost see, I used to think it was a totally negative uh, song. But now that I look at it, I'm not really getting that. I'm getting that it's probably more about taking chances. And even though it's, yeah, fall, you know, fallen angels spread their wings and that kind of stuff. And, but it, it's about making those decisions as a young person about what you're going to do with yourself. I mean, that's um, I are you saying it's all about drugs? Is it all about drugs? I don't know. I, I think it is about living a risky life in general. And part of that risk as a young person is drugs. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I well, think it's a, a really interesting song lyrically. I think there's a lot of depth to it. Well, there's, I would, I would say that it's a lot of like lyrical cliches, but the way that they're put together um, it sort of strikes me as like about, yeah, it's about risky behavior, but it's about being young. And I, I never really took it as, cause I was, when I first heard it, I was like, this is about drugs. But now that I look at it, I think it's a, a broader sense of what it is to be sort of young. But, and then the solo sounds like an, a train. 
<laughs> and that whole there's a lot of that in the album that's sort of like you know what i mean and a lot of the uh, guitar solos sort of start with like a train coming in and i i can't what's funny is i can't remember if that's something i've heard in previous albums or is that like a vinnie trick but sorry go ahead lyrically you were saying well i just okay so you know the the opening lyrics like a fly to a spider you're under the spell it's the game and the liar for those who told the bell. Well, what is the game and the liar? Life mm -hmm. is right. a, a game and life is a liar. Mm -hmm. And those who told the bell are the people that end up dead, right? The bell tolls mm -hmm. for right. people who die. So, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, to me, this is a pretty dark song. This is about as dark as Kiss has ever gotten. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, I think of the people that I grew up with, uh, mm -hmm several people that I grew up with that are unfortunately no longer with us uh, because, you know, they were young and wasted and, and pursued that lifestyle to the cost of ultimate cost of their lives. You know, um, there's a reference to destiny. Again, you laugh in the face of the fates, yeah. on, ongoing kiss theme. Um, when he says, uh, Fallen angels spread their wings, so so you cross the gates of, and I think I think he's saying hate, right? Yeah. Yeah, right, it is it is hate. Yeah. I mean, I looked it up actually. Weirdly enough, if you look it up on iTunes, yeah, it's it's spelled hat. I know. <laughs> Type out hate all the way. They type out hat, but yeah, you cross the yeah things of hate. Um, well, yeah, that is an interesting lyric. And that's Paul singing the chorus, I believe, right? It sounds like him. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of singing this song, uh, oddly enough, this is a song that when they performed it on the Lick It Up tour, they had Eric Carr sing more often than not. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. I mean, you know, it's nice to, you know, sort of, you know, throw one you know, to the team member and say, hey, you want to sing this song? Go ahead and do it. But, you know, I mean, I'm, I assume Gene could have sang the song live. I, I just wonder what the reason was for that. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think they just said he had too many songs to sing live, but they liked the song, so they wanted to keep it in the set. I mean, he did sing it live sometimes, um, I think yeah. at the very beginning. And, uh, and then that same line, when it comes up again, I almost feel that fallen angels spread their wings. Um, and heaven said, yeah. yeah, I don't yeah. know if that's right. You know, you can't always go by iTunes, to be honest, because they're sloppy in what they accept. And anybody can basically submit lyrics. There's a whole thing. So I'm crossing the gates to hat, buddy. I don't know. Yeah, about you cross the gates to hat. According to the lyrics. Yeah. What is what does the lyrics say there? Bottom line. Look, cross the gates of hate. OK. And does it say that's what it is both times? Uh. Yes. Okay. Yes. I almost feel like the last time there's there's some reference to Satan, right? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, I know what you mean. It sounds like you could be saying Satan, but I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I heard Death From Above. It's one of the other songs. I don't know. <laughs> really. Well, here again, too, thank goodness you know, they started finally giving us the lyrics. Yes. The albums. You know, the Elder, you know, if you can find a copy of the lyric sheet and Creatures, you know, here we, you know, Finally, for the people that appreciate the lyrics, we can actually read them and appreciate them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, now, lyric musically, this song is um, 
really about as heavy as Kiss has ever got. That great barrel and riff, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Love yeah. That. yeah. Um, and again, that's that A, B, A, C thing in terms of this mm-hmm. riff. Um, live, this is one of those songs that just sounded like a wall of sound. I mean, talk about space. There's no space in this song. <laughs> and like, they could be halfway into the song before you even knew what song it was. I mean, it was like, yeah. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't think in terms of live performances, they really gave the song, you know, uh, what it deserved. You know, it just kind of became, like you said, a wall of noise. And um, it's definitely a heavy song. And if it was competitive with, with what was heavy, quote unquote, you know, for that era in terms of other bands, you know, a for effort, but I think you know the the versions on the on the album is a much better presentation than yeah. what they did live on the tour. And I'm not criticizing their performance; I'm just saying that it just certain songs don't work that well live. Right, and I I think part of the problem too was the way that they were mixing them live up at this point. Yeah, really before Hot in the Shade was the vocals were taking a big backseat to the the volume of the guitars. Yeah, and you guys told that great story about you know the the sound check for the, the, this tour when you guys saw uh, the lick up tour in Pittsburgh. I mean, you know, in terms of in terms of being subtleties within the mix and you know dynamics, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of that going on. Um, no. and, and on that subject, I dug this out today. I don't know if you can see it. March fourth, nineteen eighty four. There we go. Yes, we were there. Yeah. Stanley Theater. Woo! Yes, I was there with my so mom. You. <laughs> Did you? Nice. You were there. Well, I was there. I was, right oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had third row seats. Right. Um, it was your brother, me, my mom, and who else? Mike Mike Parker was there with us. Okay. Yeah, that was a great show. It was amazing. My first real concert, so. Yeah, and I'll tell a whole story about that. But, you know, it, it's funny that, like, the guys on three sides talk about how disappointed they were when they saw the show because they had seen the creatures show with the same tank turret thing and now it was just kiss without makeup because when i look at bootlegs of this when i look at the show in montreal you know the energy level of the guys is like 10 times on stage what it was on creatures i mean they paul is running back and forth doing knee slides and like you know neck high kicks and uh because once they're freed from the constriction of those those boots you know they they can they they are free and they they are like this is the rocky three moment of their careers (laughs) where if this album doesn't hit at a certain point and this tour doesn't succeed they're done for yeah yeah and you know, too, you know, just speaking of you know the show that we saw at the Stanley, I mean, the opening band was Accept, right? Yeah. You know, yep. I thought Accept did you know a great job at what they were what they were presenting, but still, yeah, I'm not, I'm not just talking in terms of volume and, and, and energy, but like Kiss obviously just came across as you know the, the stronger band of the night. Oh yeah, yeah. You know? There was nobody saying, well, why are these guys opening for Kiss? Yeah, I mean, maybe if you had seen you know Motley open for Kiss on the Creatures tour, you might you might have you know more of a run for your money but you know either way i, I didn't see that tour and i'd never seen you know, Motley for kiss so you know but either way yeah. nonetheless uh young and wasted um for me you know, look at it this way it, it's if it's about drugs or you know partying or, or lifestyle it's it's a different song in terms of if you compare it to cold gin like cold gin is basically a story about you know a guy's life and you know it's cold gin time again and, you know it's time to get moving on again 
Whereas this, I think Gene takes a different approach with the lyrics. He tries to get a little more, you know, in depth with, you know, like a lifestyle or something, you know. Um, but at the same time, I could see where you might want to write a song called Young and Wasted and hope that that will translate to an audience and they can raise their yeah. lips and sing along to a, a, you know, big loud chorus and yell Young and Wasted, you know. And yeah, feel good about it. If that's what you're the vibe I get too is that it is sort of a cautionary tale, but at the same time, they're trying to like, gather the teenagers you know what i mean they're yeah. definitely playing both ends are playing yeah. both sides here they on one hand it's a dark cautionary tale and props to them for not glamorizing it but mm. when it was played live it was done with the stage rap of you know is there anybody here young and wasted you know yeah yeah so you know yeah my mom's right here no <laughs> Well, I think I told you guys um, at the, on the Lick It Up tour, I remember there was a, a mother that had her, her son there at the show. And I previously mentioned there was a lot of cussing going on in, in Paul's raps. And she did basically walked the kid out of the audience. They were like, they were going home halfway through the show. She was oh, like, wow. I'm not I'm having nothing to do with this. And I felt bad for the kid. I mean, I remember I was 14. I remember oh, they're cussing a lot, but I'm not that offended by it, but he's cussing a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, I know. That, it blew my mind. I mean, I had never been to a type of entertainment like that. You know what I mean? I'd never seen a movie. I had never seen a television show that was that openly sexual. <laughs> you know what I mean? That was yeah. that openly filthy. You know, and just being like, I mean, I remember even the accept thing. There was this like fake stage fight between Udo and his guitar player. You know what I mean? Where they were like sort of going back and forth. And I'm just thinking, what the hell is that? You know what I mean? Like now they're going to wrestle on stage, you know? And I, it, it was, it was like the quintessential adult defining moment in my life. And of course my mom was freaking there, but you know, <laughs> it was like it was, it was totally like, you know, mind blowing, you know, that there was so much swearing and so much, talking about sex and you know that the you you know the pittsburgh groupie that the ugly girl with the blonde hair oh, every yeah. single show you know who she is well that we we didn't we did not see her till animalize i think you're kind of conflated oh really am i already dreaming okay yeah. well at any rate um no that was the first time we ever spoke to her okay but i swear i'd seen her yeah at any rate well no you're, you're probably right i don't know but at any rate um yeah, it, it just blew my mind. It blew my, I think I was 13 at the time, 13 or 14. I was in eighth grade, you know. And it, we I were was, in seventh grade. Were we in seventh? Yeah. Okay. All right. So, yeah. So that was eight. Was it 83 or 84? It was 84. March 4th, 84. Seventh 84. Grade. March 4th, 84. So I wouldn't have turned 14 yet. I was always a year behind. Yeah, seventh grade. Okay, you're right. Sorry. Yeah. I, I, you know, I have a very vivid memory too of one of Paul's great raps where he, you know, says, you know, I was talking to some people backstage and they were telling me that we got to end the show early yep, tonight because you guys got to get up and you got to go to work. You got to go to school. You're tired, you know, and the, the entire audience was, you know, saying bullshit, bullshit, boo, you know, and they leave the stage. And in my mind, maybe they didn't really do this, but in my mind, mm -hmm. <laughs> I picture them put, poking their heads around the corner <laughs> one at a time, a la like the Three Stooges, you know, <laughs> and then coming back out and saying, now, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that you people don't give a fuck about what you're doing tomorrow? 
well, then you're our kind of people because we don't really give a fuck about what we're doing to borrow neither. So what do you say we play some more rock and roll music for you? Wow. You know, great stuff. Wow. Great stuff yeah. when you're 14 years old. Yoinks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, Gene, they're still here. <laughs> you didn't go home. <laughs> okay, Paul. <laughs> Anyhow, back to the album. Right. Give me more. Yeah, I'd just say it's great. I mean, the, the, it's musically great. It's high energy. I mean, it's, you know, it's a good, Lick It Up is a great album you want to listen to when you're driving like a long distance or something like that. And this is a great song for that because literally it's cliche after freaking cliche after cliche lyrically, but it's a lot of fun to listen to. You know what I mean? It's fast paced. The riff is really cool. Paul's vocal is great, but there's nothing that particularly stands out to me about it. It's almost, I would argue it's almost filler. Now, is there, is this like, what's the history behind the song? Who wrote it? Uh, Co-write between Paul and Vinny, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure who wrote what, but uh, apparently Paul had said that, you know, Vinny would throw really interesting uh, musical parts um, his way. And also he would contribute uh, lyrical points of view and things to sort of spur him on. Um, you know, so it's not really clear who wrote what part of the song. But either way, I think the idea was when I read Paul said he wanted a song that was really up-tempo and balls out and damn if he didn't get it, you know, because Dave, you and I have played this song live and it's a bear to play live, but when you do, it feels good to do yeah, it. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's, and it's a really interesting song musically, especially at the beginning, because one of the things that we discovered when we were playing this song live is yeah. that the kick starts off on the offbeat during the introduction and then goes immediately onto the onbeat when the song kicks in, which, yeah just as a musician trying to catch that and do it right is uh, a little bit of a challenge. <laughs> Which again goes to my point that I made earlier that, you know, in other discussions where if you throw one of these riffs or these songs to a drummer that doesn't know Kiss, you know, and they're usually the guys in the corner sitting with their arms full of like, you know, Kiss is, you know, simple music, I could play that. Okay, well try this. Yes. <clears throat> you know, are they gonna okay. be able to pull it off? Probably not, you know, because there's a whole different approach to these songs and it is that elusive thing that Dave you and I've always been chasing after like where did they come up with that is it the the English band influence was there a specific band where they said we're going to write songs that are sort of like always behind the beat you know I mean where did that come from but at the same time you know I don't I can't think of any other bands that are writing songs that would have an intro like that and have the drums come in that way maybe if it was like a jazz band or something you know <laughs> I don't know but yeah. these guys are hard rock musicians that are not you know seriously trained musicians, you know, for the most part, it's, you know, it's tricky, you know, to them, it comes naturally. Yeah. 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 Um, and you know, lyrically it may be cliche, but there's also something very primal and Freudian about, you know, just the idea, give me more. Right. I mean, that's a baby's first yeah. natural instinct, whether it's suckling on the, the breast or, you know, hungry or fresh out of the womb is, is you know give me more and i think that it works on that that basic primal level right, yeah. the it's best that kind of rock and roll hits yeah it doesn't have to be shakespeare you know i mean you know some bands write songs and they're called whole lot of love you know and paul says you know give me more when you give me love you know i mean it's you know the same kind mm. of approach right yeah yeah um, but you know, musically too one of the things that dave you and i discovered was uh, those chord changes in the the pre-chorus right <laughs> And then you go to the seventh. You know, that's a subtle change, but it, you can put like an F in the bass if you want, or you know, I don't know. I, 
I just appreciate core changes. And these are the fun things that I discover in our discussions and reviewing these records and sort of reliving, learning these songs as a, as a kid and appreciate it. I mean, you know, they're well-written songs. They Without really are. They really are. And, and so much of that, I think it comes down to Vinny and his contributions. Because um, so as we'll we'll discover next week, <laughs> as soon as <laughs> Vinny is not there, the songwriting uh, takes a considerable change for the worse. Yeah, yeah. But also too, um, we I spoke earlier about you know Paul's rhythm playing. Um, you know, in the breakdown after the solo, that's classic Paul Stanley rhythm guitar playing, like in the pocket, in the groove, and almost like kind of like behind the mm -hmm. beat. Great. Um, and I also love the fact that he sort of throws in like the I want you lyric in, in the end of the song as well. Mm. You know, yeah, it's kind yeah. of fun to, to hear. But it, to me, it's a killer performance on Paul's part. And it's, it's just a barn burner of a song. Um, and I, apparently they played it, you know, you know, a, a certain extent on the tour as well. I forget how long they played it, but um, it was definitely in the set for a while. OK. No, oh, really? OK. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, needless to say, were they to break out any of these songs? Yeah. It would be amazing to hear this or not for the innocent or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and apparently, also, too, on the subject of the, of the tour, I think um, about approximately two thirds of the set list were from uh, the Creatures album and the Lick It Up album. So, again, they felt really strongly about what they were doing at the time in order to make that the focus of their set list and then throw in things like, you know, Firehouse, Truck City, Cold Gin, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, they definitely believed in these albums and this material for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was where they were turning. They were becoming more of like a glam band. Their fans were sort of, you know what I mean? That was the, I mean, they were the original glam band, really. Right. But more of a metal band. In a, yeah, they're becoming more of a metal band than a hard rock band. So they're sticking to that kind of stuff. And you're lucky us for being able to see these songs be presented live because that's not going to happen these days, yeah. you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good point. In a way, everybody says you know, they should play things, you know, like you know, classic, you know, B song, B side songs from, you know, seventies albums. I mean, what about these eighties records that are so great that you know they're never going to touch, you know, live? Thank goodness yeah. we saw these tours. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people say, you know, I wish I'd seen Kiss in the seventies when they you had the makeup and all the stuff. Well, you know, they weren't any less heavy or any less impressive or just bombastic or executing their songs well in, in a live situation in the 80s. So, you know, we're lucky. Absolutely. Yeah, the songs in the 80s deliver what they're supposed to deliver, does what it says on the tin. I'm not saying that in any way this stuff, this stuff is good, hard rock, heavy metal, just like the stuff in the 70s. It's just, there's, I would say their songwriting even becomes more laser focused as they continue to practice to do it. You know what I mean? The songs may not be as, classic but they're still just as good i mean they still get it you know they still know how to write a, a rocker like give me more it's there's nothing super exciting about it but i still you know was you know jamming out to it listening to it you know i, I agree with you john but also you know we discussed you know bands like led zeppelin you know which you know if you want to call it at the end of their career when after john bond or you know, before john bond passed away um albums like presence you know that was far removed from led zeppelin one or led zeppelin two Here's a band that, you know, had written some really great, you know, records in the 70s that were classic hard rock records in terms of our perception, but they always grew. And, and growing doesn't mean, you know, you're writing more, you know, intelligent lyrics or, you know, learning more chords or, you know, playing faster, which of course, they, you know, they did. 
But you know, here they are, they're advancing as, as musicians. They're, they're singing, you know, basically in, in 440 keys, which is a lot harder than a half step down or a whole step down. You know, and they're not, they're not sort of resting on their laurels. You know, they're, they're looking to, you know, sort right. of up their game and stay competitive. And I take my hat off to those guys for, for doing that because, you know, like you said, Dave, you know, if, if they weren't going to succeed in this record, then Paul was basically saying he wanted to retire. Well, you know, good for them for delivering this product in, in terms of this record because it, it, they delivered. Now, Paul did say that. I want to make one point, though. Within perhaps the same breath, <laughs> um, when Kiss won in the Kerrang! Readers Award for Best Band, Best Album, Best Song, whatever, um, there was a quote from Paul where he said, we are a band in its infancy, hmm. right? And I thought, remember, I remember reading that quote back then thinking like, well, gosh, I don't know. It seems like they're pretty old. They've been around for a long time. Like, <laughs> how can he say that they're in their infancy? Mm. And yet, he was so right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Especially too, because when you when you bring in a new member to the band and you have some sort of new career to spark, then it's a whole new band. Yeah, you know, it's, not, it's not the same band. And you know, think about it. As many times they've had to, re I shouldn't say rejuvenate their career, but they've had to refocus and realign with new players and new songwriters. And here's an album where there's no outside songwriters. You know, and had things gone well, personality-wise with, you know, Kiss and Vinny, I think I've read certain things where if if Kiss had recorded some of the songs that Vinny had written for the Vinny Vincent uh, Invasion albums, that would have been a better situation, you know, to present some of those songs, probably. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, but it's a, it's a shame that, you know, here it is that, you know, Vinny finally gets to be a full member of the band claims his stake and, and that's what it is. And granted, he co-wrote some other songs later, you know, on future releases. But I, again, in terms of the infancy thing, yes, it was a brand new band in a way and they were ready, ready to, to, you know, to bolster that and support that. And no wonder they, they, they were quoted that way. All hell's breaking loose. Do, 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 do. Okay. Freaking one of my all-time favorite Kiss songs ever in the history of Kiss songs. Absolutely love it. I did not know that this actually has a writing credit from Eric Carr on it, which I found in my research, which is kind of cool. Eric um, wrote the riff. Wrote that oh, really? Yeah. Okay. All right. I did not know that. One of my all-time favorite things about it is the chorus which I always took as them switching to minors, but I don't know, you know, um, how, what's the core? Mike, play the chorus, man. You bet. Let me just get retuned here. Um, also on tuning, this song is an open G, which is again. Okay, so inhale. But the, the, uh, the riff you're talking about, yeah, John, like, is the, the pre-chord. Yeah, what, how are, are they doing? Is that just a half step down or how are they doing that? Yeah, that's basically a, uh, it'd be like an A flat G to a G again. Okay. Yeah, and then an a flat. I love that. Yeah. Because it's so sort of mean sounding and so edgy. Um, lyrically, it's, I, it's funny because I haven't really listened to the song and I mean, I still hear it, you know, it'll be, you know, I'll still pop up in my playlist. 
but uh, now that I'm finally paying attention to the African-American vernacular in the beginning of the first <laughs> what be yeah. this and what be that really made me actually stop and think about it because I mean, Lord knows I want to go back in time and slap myself for ever doing, you know what I mean? The sort of, because, you know, we all did it as white kids, particularly those of us that grew up in the city and actually heard um, the, you know, and, and now that I've actually studied it in like linguistics classes and things like that and how that actually works, you know what I mean? The, the non uh, defined infinitive and African-American vernacular and all that kind of stuff. And I want to be like, what do you, that's why did they, decide to do that okay so before we get on that i also like the egyptian <laughs> vibe in the uh, solo that's really cool too yes it's actually yeah. probably vinnie's most memorable solo from the album yeah. because it has that kind of egyptian or arabian theme it's cool as hell yeah yeah okay so my only my only criticism now is that that you know what be this and what be that i mean it seems like like, oh my God, you are such a suburban white dude, man. Why, you but, know what I mean? But he's not speaking in the first person. He's speaking. Right, he's speaking in the point of view of the, but you never take the voice of the oppressed. <laughs> no, man, I'm just saying. It, it gave me pause. I'm not going to tear it apart because it's still, it's still literally probably my second favorite Kiss song ever. Um but it just, it made me stop for a second. Cause I know, yeah, you're right. It is using someone else's voice. Um, yeah, well, he's saying that is what the street hustler says. Hustler says, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. So it, it, it is in quotations too, so. Okay, know. so I guess if it's in quotations. Yeah. Can, and again, I mean, songs are about playing characters. You know what I mean? I mean, we all, you know, what's that one in a million by Guns N' Roses and, oh, you know, yeah. I, I listened to that and didn't even bat an eye at it because I knew that Axel was supposedly playing a character in it. You know what I mean? But, um, and that's what songs do. I mean, you know, Gene Simmons does not literally go through a woman like a hot knife through butter. I know, <laughs> you know, playing a character. Um, but it's just interesting. You know, it just made me pause finally because I wanted to be like, oh man, remember when, people used to do that you know what i mean and, and not even think about it you know about it being an issue it probably well it's it's also one of the the earliest examples of rap rock right this yeah. actually predates yeah. uh aerosmith and run dmc i think mm -hmm. anything that anthrax did with public enemy yeah mm. by three or four years yeah yeah there was other stuff before that. There was stuff starting to appear, like 24-7 Spies and mm. other bands that were sort of experimenting with the idea. That sort of new, yeah, there were other rap rock bands sort of appearing in the 80s. But yeah, I'd argue this is one of the first ones. I mean, this is definitely one of the first ones. You know, funny too, looking at the lyric sheet, um, this is the first time, my God, since 1983 that I've noticed this. At the very beginning of each um, verse, See the, the spoken, dash. spoken, <laughs> yeah. Not to not not to be you know, vocalized or sung or however you want to you know phrase yeah. it. That is funny that they put that there. I never, yeah, I, I didn't even remember wow. that. Huh. And of course, you know, with the, the you know the street hustler, you know, comments being in quotes, I mean, he's obviously he goes uncredited, but nonetheless, um, well, who is this street yeah. hustler? Who is this street hustler? Yeah, but you know, at the same time too, we've all been in New York City. We've been you know. Um, LA and even we've all in, been in downtown Pittsburgh. We've had this right? happen. Yeah, yes. you know, we've, we've gone most, to Risenstein. Yes. Right. <laughs> what, what, what was the story up on the Sixth Street Bridge? We know what's going on. Well, what was yeah. the elevator? What was the elevator on on that mall in, on, on the north side? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. 
We, the, okay, sorry. Total aside, you know where the new PNC Op Center is, where my wife works, even though now she works from home. In yes. that mall, they turned oh. it into a PNC thing. So every time we go in there to visit mom at work, we get in that elevator, and I turn uh, to Jack and Evan. I go, I got my ass kicked in this elevator, and they go, Dad, we know. Stop telling us that story. But it is part of PNC Bank. Okay. So we we have all known a bunch of different street hustlers at various times of of all colors. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think yeah. that you know, I don't I don't see it as being inherently racist. I think it's interesting that uh the whole the idea that he's being questioned by this street hustler for you know why he looks like this and behaves that way and his hair's like that, you know, and he, he comes back with this idea that he knows, you know, I am cool, I am the breeze, like I am a natural force of nature. The coolness in me runs so strong, right. whether you see it or not, <laughs> right? Yeah. But I am cool, I am the breeze is something that harkens back to the 1950s, which I think is even more interesting. Right, daddy-o, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, um, this song also, I, I think it's it's interesting. Uh, the the chorus. I, if I had one complaint, I wish that they used that that line "fight the institution" more than once, because to me, that's the strongest line in the chorus. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting though because they never get they never make it specific. It's everything is just everything. All hell's breaking loose, and you got to fight the you know take it to the streets and. It's a very generic song of revolution. You know, there's no like power to the, you know, it's it definitely, but it's definitely about as good as, I mean, not as good as, but it's, you know, if you Patty Smith's power to the people is fairly nonspecific as well. You know what I mean? So it's. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you had songs like We're Not Gonna Take It. Yeah. Uh, that were riling up the PMRC that couldn't yeah. have been any less specific, right? Right, yeah. Twisted yeah. Sister wasn't saying fight the institution, you know. And, no. and yet somehow the PMRC, I mean, what institutions are they talking about? The church, the government, society. Yeah. I mean, that to me is the crux of the song. I just wish that they had repeated it because it's a much heavier line yeah. than say, feel the new sensation. Okay, you know, I mean. Well, they're, they're a very, I mean, they're not a band that rides, uh, I don't know, I don't even know how to say that. It's not, they're not a band that rides the non-establishment of music. They're very ensconced in the um, politics of, you know, large corporation making albums. You know what I mean? They're backed, so they're not like a hardcore band from Poughkeepsie, you know? So they're, you know, that's gonna talk about, you know, or they're not TSOL, you know, prop, they're not going to come out with a song called Property is Theft. You know what I mean? They're not going to, you know, do that kind of stuff. So they're, they're almost like they're keeping it a little bit generic, you know, because... Clearly the institution that they wanted to fight was not their record company, yes. Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, they're not in the, you know... Well, especially considering, too, this is their first release, I believe, on... Uh... After signing with Polygram, right? Or it was the second... Either yeah, way, they, they, they were new to this label, so yeah. Mercury, you don't wanna... Mercury. Is it yeah, that was it. You're right. Mercury it is. Yes. I was going to say, I, was, I would argue, though, that you could take the riff from Young and Wasted and produce it a little bit differently and it would fit in on a hardcore record. Yeah, I agree. Oh, totally. Do, 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 do. Yeah, yeah. totally. 
No, I, I believe actually a lot of this album is kind of punk influenced in terms of its, you know, chugging sound and the, you know what I mean? That kind of sound. It's definitely faster. Punk is definitely informing this, this album. You know, I mean, all those glam metal bands were all, you know, listening to the punk bands. It's definitely informed. I mean, that's, that was, um, yeah, no, I think I think it's totally there. The distortion, the heaviness, all that kind of stuff. I think it definitely is informed by it. And I think it still has even elements of it. I think I think, you know, punk is informed from metal, you know. I mean, you've got bands like Fugazi saying like, yeah, that they listen to heavy metal, they listen to reggae, they listen and it informs their stuff. And they're said as a punk band, you know, they're never not going to be a punk band because no one is ever going to take a vocal lesson in that band. But if you listen to their, their albums, they're musically all over the place and very complex, you know. So I think they're all informing each other. And I think this is definitely informed by that sort of punk aesthetic. I mean, even the video is them walking around some sort of wasteland or whatever. Shot in the same place they shot the Lick It Up video. That was apparently yeah. j just a section of the Bronx. <laughs> really? Okay. It was burnt wow. out in the 1980s. Wow. I mean, Paul said they literally showed up and it was blocks and blocks of like burnt out buildings and stuff. Yeah. They didn't have to do anything to dress it up. There was and no he, set dressing needed. And he was just shocked. He was like, I can't believe that the, the, this part of the Bronx is this bad. Yeah, but yeah. It, it totally has that post-apocalyptic road warrior Kind right. Of look to it. What were you going to say, Mike? Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, having been to Detroit in 1996 uh, for the Kiss reunion tour, the first night of the tour, we walked through Detroit um, and it looked, you know, I'm sure Sherry can relate, you know, your wife. That place was a scary place. I mean, they, you know, they were, anyhow, yeah, in terms of landscapes, there are places that exist like that for sure in a natural state and it's interesting to see. Um, but I was going to bolster your point, Dave, about uh, the line about, um, uh, fight the institution you know thank goodness you know the kiss got that line in this record because i think this is basically the part that's in all the pre-choruses but you'll appreciate this too dave is you know every pre-chorus the lyrics are different it's not just repet rep rep repetition you're doing the same thing we got a, i got a line and we got the, the pre-chorus covered we'll just repeat the same thing it changes every time yeah and but it all stays within the theme of the lyric which which is great which again is credit to you know their songwriting and their developing um as artists mm-hmm and as much as I love this song, and I think it's a, a classic Kiss song that des deserves a lot more recognition, I have mm. to say this song did not work that well live with the way the Kiss was being mixed back then, because yeah. there was no way for Paul's vocals spoken to cut through that wall of guitars. Yeah. I mean, it was just totally lost. Um, Interestingly enough, this out this video did not get as much airplay as Look It Up did, and uh, I remember Paul was interviewed at the time about that, and and he said, "Is is there anything that you'd like to say to MTV about that?" And he said, "No, not really." He said, "You know, we were around a long time before MTV was, and we'll be around a long time after they're gone." <laughs> and <laughs> I thought it was such a brilliantly arrogant yes. thing to say and yet it turned out to be true it's so right. true yeah right wow yeah man those guys yeah i love those guys they're so focused you know yeah a couple of interesting points too on this song too i guess uh apparently you know like you said eric wrote you know apparently he wrote everything except the, the melody and the lyrics 
Yeah. He, um, he wrote the riff and he said that he envisioned it as being kind of like a Led Zeppelin type song. And I think he was shocked when he heard what Paul actually did with it. Yeah, because I also saw too that I guess, um, you know, if you're going to present a song as like a, you know, a Zeppelin type song, you know, obviously, you know, you can either, you know, swing or hang yourself, you know, if, if you give yourself enough rope, then, you know, bands like Kingdom Come, you know, they worked for about, you know, 30 seconds and then they were like tagged as a Zeppelin cover band or, you know, even like the Coverdale Page stuff is like, well, oh, they sound like too much like Led Zeppelin. Well, it's, well you have half of Led Zeppelin in, in your band. So, you know, it's, but anyway, uh, point being, I think Paul had a great quote about that. He basically said that the alternative, which would have been to make it a, Le a Led Zeppelin type song, would have been to do something that would have turned into a mimicry of something else. So okay. in other words, you know, do something different with it. And that became the rap thing. Where the rap thing came from, I don't know. It's um, sickeningly clever. I mean, it really is yeah. for them to take that yeah. risk and then have it work that well. It's almost mind blowing. Like, I wish we had more. At what point was he like, yeah, I'm going to rap on this. You know, was he like sitting down <laughs> listening to rap records? You know what I mean? Like, but there have also been those moments you know, with Paul where, you know, he's done certain things vocally and, you know, that'll be on later on we'll discuss. But, you know, this is something that is different for Paul to do, but I, I never hated it once. I've always thought it was interesting and it worked. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, when an artist takes a chance, it's good to know that, you know, it, it, it can succeed and it'll, you know, be passable and acceptable to, to the fans. And I always thought it worked. You know, it's just, it's, there's confidence in, in these lyrics. And um, like you said, Dave, yeah, that live presentation, if you look at it, it doesn't really work because that riff is such a slinky riff and it's such a weird counterpoint to the vocal. It, it, I mean, it works on record, like we mentioned about uh, other songs on the record, but live, you know, not, you know, not, not first choice in terms of, you know, presenting, uh, um, you know, songs for the set. Mm -hmm. Okay, moving on to A Million to One. Um, one of the things I want to point out, I was kind of researching this song. Um, I think it owes a bit to, there's a couple different songs called A Million to One that were done by R&B or Motown sounding artists. Mm -hmm. um, but the one that I think is most relevant is one that was written by Phil Medley and originally done by yeah. Jimmy Charles in 1960. Uh, it was a top five hit and it was covered by artists like from 1967, 68, 69, 72, 73, mm. 77. So it certainly would have been on Paul's radar. And the reason why I think this, this version of A Million to One, this song touches on that version um, is that uh, the line, A Million to One, that's what is in the original song in you know the kiss song oh. it's obviously a million to one that's what it will be in mm -hmm. the original song it's a million to one that's what our folks say you know the idea being that um their relationship has a one in a million shot of succeeding and their parents are kind of against it and blah 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 but the mm -hmm. fact that that those lines in those words are oh. all not only similar but exact, exact tells me that this this song was probably influenced and perhaps a little bit of a nod and a hat to that to that version mm -hmm. wow i didn't know that that's actually well, kind yeah of i mean good to know that you know that would be on i'm sure that that would have been you know within his scope of view when it comes to you know listening to songs and and, and writing songs on your own wow now you make me want to go back and listen to it again because <laughs> i didn't really i didn't really like it i actually wrote the word filler by it it didn't stand out to me um 
it's it sounds like a song in the middle of side two. You know what I mean? Like I don't think I would have skipped over it, but it doesn't stand out to me at all. So you guys go. Tell me how I'm wrong. Um, you know, I think it's better than that. I think when it, it's a song that actually, though they didn't play it live, could have worked live because when Paul played it on his solo tour, on the Live to Win tour, it yeah. sounded great. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I love the, uh, the, the chorus variation that comes in at, at the end of the song with it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's it's yeah. The chord changes are great. Yeah, I think I mean the fact that 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 part comes in towards the end of the song and just kind of elevates the whole thing. Um, I mean it it works for me. I you know is it the most original thing? No. I mean in addition to the song that I mentioned and there's another there are other songs called A Million to One. I remember there there was a pop song, although I, I tried to find it and I can't find it. It wasn't the one that I mentioned that was also called Annoying to One. And I know it came out around the same oh. time because I was in a store and I heard it and I originally thought, is this the Kiss song? And then it was a totally different song. It might be the Romantics. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's, um, that's striking me as... Yeah, it, was, it was on the album that also had um, Talking in Your Sleep and Rock You Up. Okay. I'll yeah, they had a that. song called Million to One. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good song, good record, but you know, this is stronger than two, in my opinion. But um, you know, nonetheless, I you know, I think with this song, it, this sounds like one of those songs that would have been on the nineteen seventy eight solo album from Paul. Yeah. You know, but, which in, in that case, those songs could work well. You know, if Kiss recorded or performed those songs. In this case, you know, they did. Uh, and granted, it's, it's a relationship song. Uh, but there's a real strong element to it melodically, which is great. Um, and the bridge chords to me are amazing. And his vocals are, are killer. Um, you know, and I just love, you know, the fact that you know, here's a guy writing a lyric, you know, like you said, Dave, you know, a million to one, that's what it will be, that there's somebody better than me. Yes. <laughs> Man, you know, it's like, all right. You know, he's obviously not going to lose in this relationship game, you know. And Paul talks about sort of the, the, false braggadocio of that sentiment yeah. he was in yeah. a relationship that wasn't working out and yet uh you know so that was kind of him compensating for that well yeah you'll never find anyone better than me but who <laughs> who has not been in a failed relationship and felt that sentiment so yeah yeah never <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about well, yeah it, it, no, it, i agree okay all right if you're me and you know you had my dad, he he was the type of guy that would tell you, "Well, Mike, if if the girl's going to break up with you, then here's what you do: you find out where she's going, and you show up where she's going with a better looking broad by your side, and you put it in her face." So, <laughs> so, you know, that was my dad. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that's my approach to life, but you know, when I was 14, when I broke with my first broke up with my first girlfriend, I was really depressed about it, and that's that that was the lesson I got. Nice. That's a good dad. Yeah. Well, much as much as uh, Henry Rollins talks about, you know, when you're you're a teenager and you break up with your your first girlfriend, you don't want to listen to a song about how your heart is broken and your, your life is over and life right. sucks. You want to put on Ronnie James Dio and listen to him right. belt out a song about <laughs> devil woman. You know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
Don't listen to journey songs. Listen to poetry. Black on black paper. Black crayon. Black marker on black paper. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, but in a way, John, too, I think if 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 this might be something that you might not be interested initially, it's a really great song. If it seems like it doesn't, you know, get the doesn't sort of get the credit that you think it deserves, it's worth a re-listen. It's it's a great song. Okay, I'll give it more. Especially, like you said, Dave, after seeing him play it on the, the Live, Live to Win tour, it was great. One of the standout tracks on that tour. Yeah, okay. for sure. All right. All right. Fits like a glove. <laughs> yeah, okay. So as a middle school teacher and the <laughs> father of um, two boys, um, I will never judge what they listen to after finally going through, I remember reading the lyrics to this and being like, this is filthy. I can't believe I own this record. And then totally forgetting that until I finally really did a re-listen of this. And this is filthy. You know what I mean? And it's funny because a lot of times the, um, you know, the songs that students that I have listened to are songs that even my son listens to. You know what I mean? I'm like, I am not going to be that dad that says, or that teacher that says, this is filthy, you shouldn't be listening to this, because I know that deep down I was the same, you know what I mean, at some point, and I try and hold it in, but there's always that thing where I'm just like, this is filthy, why are these kids listening to this? But if I got away with listening to this as a child, um, then I'm probably, you know, whatever my kids or my students want to listen to, they're going to turn out fine. Because this is now, I would give you that this is a little more, um, masked and innuendo and um more poetical than a lot of the things kids listen to now and turn you know now it's just like outright just says what they're gonna say you know what i mean well this this, this is much more clearly descended from the fine tradition of hokum right right where you know like you know i'll show you you know miss mulaney's big black bottom you know i'll you mm-hmm. know hornet's nest lay me right, down yeah. to re- i mean all this kind of all this metaphor i mean it's very um it's you know again it, it comes down to like his influences like the big bopper and little richard and the you know baby won't you let me in you know it's cold out here what, well I mean, he does <laughs> actually say wet dreams in there and stuff like that i mean it's definitely a pretty it's a little more sexually explicit yeah it's like like give give me more was too i mean yeah they're definitely they're playing to a a more adult mature version of it but i mean i wouldn't i don't i don't know that you can take it that seriously no i don't i mean i never did that's why i always whenever my kids are listening to stuff that's really or students are listening to stuff that's really above and beyond and sort of affects my 50 year old you know mentality about it i realized that of course it's the same stupid crap i was you know what i mean and that it's their male power fantasy or their goofiness or whatever you know what i mean that's that there's really nothing wrong with it um but yeah right it's it's hokum as you put it it's putting on a mask and playing along for a little bit you know yeah um so so the these lyrics i think are interesting don't like to dress or talk too good but I found my queen, not too clean, but I know what I like, if you know what I mean. So, ostensibly, he's talking about himself at the beginning, right? Where, and right. I think there, there is that, that insecurity of the Jewish immigrant, right? Mm. Who doesn't know the English language and doesn't dress in the latest fashions because he just wears the clothes that his mother bought him and they don't have very much money. 
you know, and I, I think there's there's a hint of that here that makes it interesting. And then talking about her, not too, she's not too clean, but I know what I like, if you know what I mean. Um, the one thing that you have to say about Gene is that he he is he's not playing straight to the cliche of um, being attracted to the young virginal type here. Right. I mean, there is like on on spit when he talks about how he likes women that are, are not traditionally beautiful, that are Rubenesque, shall we say, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I think in some ways you got to give him some some credit for that, for kind of defying the mold a bit, if you will. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if you just look at the numbers, I mean, obviously the guy plays the field if you will, you know, if you want to talk in gambler's terms, he, you know, he, he lays it out there in terms of wanting to have fun. I mean, as a fun experiment, if any one of these lines, you know, ain't a cardinal sin, baby, let me in, girl, I'm going to treat you right. For goodness sakes, my snake's alive and it's ready to bite. You know, try selling that lyric to your wife or girlfriend. It's not going to happen. You know, <laughs> I, I, and I've jokingly, I've jokingly tried that and it doesn't go over well, you know, so, right, but for right. Gene, it works, you know, it's but an the, approach. But these lyrics are not written as words to be said to a female. They are written yeah. as no, words to be said to teenage boys. Right. right. But, but, you know, you can't tell me that, you know, a guy in, 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 of his stature, not in terms of his height, in terms of, but in terms of his you know, power and position and, you know, uh, as a celebrity, he could deliver any one of these lines and probably score. It would work because it, he's that because guy. He's, yeah, right. So therefore, he is. He has the ability, and uh, you know, the the hall pass to write a song of this type. You know, I mean, I don't know. It, it, to me, you know, yes, it could, on one side it could be him just you know sort of telling a story, but at the same time, has he used some of these lines in social situations? Probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he had that cachet then. He's subsequently been you know banned from Fox News well, yeah. and other places, but um, yeah. You know, it's it. This song also um, live was yet another song that yeah. sounded just like a wall of white noise. Um, yeah. It was completely mm. indecipherable. And uh, but it's interesting that this song. I wish this song had shown up in, on a live three because mm. it was such a part of their live show for so long, mm. and and the whole thing about the line. Because when I go through her, it's just like a hot knife. They they turn that into a big part of the show right. where the song would stop and everybody would, but it would you know go butter, fucking butter, man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it would just play, and you know, I mean, it was it was kind of an odd bit of <laughs> emphasis, but I mean, you know, it was fun. <laughs> Yeah, it's fun. I mean, exactly. That's what this song is. It's fun, you know. But fun too, but also a bit of a disappointment because when he delivers that line, you know, through butter on the on the album, that his vocals are amazing. He sings oh, yeah. way high. His voice is like yeah. just disintegrating. It's yes. an amazing take. <laughs> it's, yeah, a it's an amazing performance. I don't think he could pull that off live. Yeah, live. true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and equally following that is this screaming guitar solo after that. I mean, I mean, yeah, I just, you know, you want to be, I was, you know, that's why I asked Kevin about, you know, last week when we were talking about him open to Kiss on the Dynasty Tour, like, 
you know, I'll, I might not ever get to that position where I'm in a band of, of that stature, but at the same time, I want to know from somebody's perspective that's been there what that's like. I mean, you can tell if you're in the room with Vinnie Vincent's guitar, it, it's flashing off of the walls. And, you know, to me, that's, that's a whole different level in terms of players. And I just admire that. And, you know, I mean, and it comes across, and the reason I bring it up is it comes across on, on this record big time in terms of their vocals and in terms of the guitar playing. And, you know, I just love that about this band. For sure. So now we come to, I would say, every chain has a weak link. Dance all over your face. Probably if I had to pick one song that is somewhat disposable, kind of cliche, and maybe falls into the category of being filler, I would say this is that song. But it's so mean. He uses the B word. Twice, <laughs> twice. at least, right? Yeah. Twice. twice. <laughs> Two times he uses the B word. Two fucking times, like, yeah. I mean, it's just so mean. Like, it's definitely like someone really broke his heart. I mean, I actually... I mean, I would know. I don't think I would ever be that. No, yeah, I would be. But I mean, I, I don't know if I'd turn it into a song. You know, I, I could imagine being this vindictive. But and again, it's another song that like I will never make sure that I never judge what my kids or my students are listening to because it's equally just as bad, you know. I don't think he's advocating violence towards women or anything. I don't think it's bad in that sense. I just think it's it's not the most inspired song. Um, you know, the lines, no thigh-high boots, forbidden fruit, no satin and lace, or mm -hmm. you know, no cheap perfume can change my mind. I mean, those are kind of interesting. I mean, I, I, it makes me think of, of uh, the, the Twisted Sister song, uh, Love is for Suckers, mm -hmm. when... when you know, he says, wait a minute, wait, you'll, you'll do what with your high heels on? Okay, babe, come on, let's go. You know, I mean, at least it's not that. At least it's not like, oh, God, fuck you, dude. Like, you fucking pussy. All right. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Yeah, yeah. All right, so no, none of us are particularly that happy with dance all over your face. No, to me, it's just like, you know, it, it, the, the, the subject matter is kind of bland in a way. It's been done. It's been written about over and over again. And, you know, how concerned are we with the fact that, you know, Gene's heart might be broken or he's you know, in a relationship that's sort of falling apart. He's not getting what he wants. I, you know, I don't really sympathize with that. So he has options. Yeah. Yeah. He'll be all right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, like you said, it's not necessarily, you know, condoning violence. Is he just like, you know, or is it a case where he's just sort of stomping on a photograph of the girl's face? You know, I don't know. You know what, what's going on there? I don't necessarily, yeah, I don't particularly see him advocating violence against no. women, but I just, he does call her the B word, which is mean. Yeah, damn, cussing again, here we go. Yeah. But again, too, on the solo stuff, the, the guitar stuff, um, in those licks that are after the, they're sort of in the outro, you know, in, in the chorus and stuff, there's production value here, but it's like a lot of reverse echo and reverse reverb. And um, I was listening to uh, the Angel album from, I think it's 77, uh, the title is White Hot. There's a lot of production value that's on that record that is similar to some of the guitar stuff that's going on in this song particularly. Mm, okay. I, I just remember. Um, what is it, and Angel? Yeah, Angel. Uh, they were also in Casablanca, you know, Punky Meadows, and Frank Domino. You know, they're you know, basically you know like. All right, I gotta look them up. Know, Kiss wore black and silver, and Angel wore white, and they both had 
big rock shows. And- yeah, and Punky was actually considered at one time as a possible replacement for Ace, supposedly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wait. Right. You know, and one other point, too, just to, not to take a step back, but I read something that surprised me today. Uh, apparently, Gene said that uh, Vinnie Vincent stuck in the middle part of Fits Like a Glove. So I guess like that breakdown. So when I go through her, it's just like, uh. But he's not credited in any way in terms of um, the songwriting credits on the album for that. Oh, okay. Interesting. Just thought I'd point it out. Huh. Yeah, but uh, Dance All Over Your Face, I mean, there are definitely stronger Gene tracks on this album um, to appreciate more so. Yeah, and the one that comes to mind is the final song on the album and On the Eighth Day, which I maintain is a lost classic Kiss song. That Oh, it's a great song. It really, I mean, granted, they returned this sort of lyrical theme on their version of God Gave Rock and Roll to You. Uh, but, but man, what a great song. So strong, so interesting lyrically. And this is one of those songs that it's almost like if any other band had a song like this, it would be the best song that they had. And with Kiss, yes. it's mm-hmm. like a throwaway song that they've never played live mm-hmm. and they just have forgotten about. Well, you know, Dave, I was thinking today that, um, you know, I know you and I have always uh, different perspectives of this, of this song, and it wasn't necessarily one of my favorites. Um, and I might have even said it was probably my least favorite Kiss song, but hey, if you put this on, you know, an ACDC record of the, of the period, it would have been, the, like you said, the biggest song in that record. It would have, you know, because it's got like the, the Who type guitar intro, but then the riffs and the verse and the chorus could totally have been on an ACDC record. I'm not, you know, downplaying you know kiss the song and say they sound like acdc on this song however had a band like acdc recorded the song it could have been a hit whereas like you said this is a you know the last song on the record it's not necessarily a throwaway but it's still it, i see it now in a different way than i did before and okay. i see it in, in a stronger way than i did before and thanks to you um for to help me with that right yeah. I mean, musically, it, it almost kind of, the verses kind of reference the cover they did of And Then She Kissed Me. It's similar mm-hmm. to yeah. that, that riff. Um, the, only, yeah. the only criticism I would say of the song musically is I don't know that that kind of marching part that Eric Carr plays is necessarily the right part. Uh, like I, I know what he's going for, and I think that that part should have some kind of a march behind it. But mm-hmm. something about the way that he plays it, it sounds like there's a stumble in it that that I, I don't think completely works as well as maybe an alternate part might. Mm-hmm. I, I thought about that too, and I wonder because I'm almost certain that uh, when they played Black Diamond and they added that added that sort of you know bolero coda to the end of Black Diamond in their live shows. I'm wondering if that was sort of taken from that and used in this case, because they do that a lot better than, on Black Diamond than they do on that this section of On the Eighth Day. Yeah, so I could, it should I have see, worked. I could see why you say that. And, and maybe he played it differently live and because, yeah. you know, um, but just lyrically, I think that there's a lot going on here to dive into. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. I think, you know, um, They'll call you names and spit in your face, but legends never die. Just pick up your guitar on your knees and pray and hold your head up high. And on the eighth day, 
God created rock and roll. I mean, that's pretty strong stuff lyrically. And uh, particularly the whole concept that if God created the world in seven days, that, and the world began to function on the eighth day, that it mm -hmm. is the functioning of that giant machine that is in and of itself the essence of rock and roll. Yeah, because um, technically the eighth day is sort of thought of as really the first day, right? Right. Yeah, the eighth day is, uh, I mean, eight days a week by the Beatles, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's considered the... Yeah, but it, but after after the day of let's say reflection and resting, you know, therefore you move forward and you know this becomes right, yeah. the you know, first day. Yeah, you get to the second verse. Um, the one line that that kind of uh, sticks sticks on me, where I'm not quite sure what they're going for, is you sold your soul and virginity. You can't rape a heart of gold. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what does you can't rape a heart of gold mean at all? Like you can't, if you have a heart of gold, no, even if violence is done to you, it cannot break you or something like, I got Yeah, I, I guess that's probably the best possible explanation for the meaning of that line that, that, that because you're a good person that any violence done against you, you will overcome. Um, but I don't know that it's necessarily expressed the best way and, uh, in terms of you can't rape a heart of gold, um, you know. Well, what's even weirder is the delivery of that line. You can't understand it in the vocal. Like I had to go back and read the lyrics to see what he says there. Yeah, I mean, it, you almost wish it was something more like you sold your soul and virginity. You can't defeat a heart of gold or something. Yeah, like yeah. That. The word rape is has so many other connotations that you know it's it's such a loaded word. I don't know that that's the best possible choice, but you know, I love the, because you're born to rule its destiny, now it can be told. Mm -hmm. You know, once again, going back to the, the KISS running theme of destiny and the whole, the whole biblical thing of, you know, now your destiny can be revealed, almost a callback to the elder that you are the chosen one and, mm -hmm. and now the elder gods of KISS can reveal it to you. This is brilliant stuff. I mean, really. It is. I agree. I'm glad you brought up that point, Dave. Yeah, because definitely I was going to say, this almost seems like lyrics that might have been a holdover from the elder or you know, considered during that time. Um, and on that second verse too, I mean, how many times have you heard, you know, stories about, you know, artists that were, you know, signing for record labels and they got raped by the label? I mean, it, it's, it's happened, you know? So in a way, um, okay. you know, if you're selling your soul to the devil and <laughs> your virginity to, you know, to the gods of, you know, the music industry and you know you get raped well that's that's you know that's not an uncommon uh situation and it also shows too that you know that they come out on, on the winning end because they know that you know like you said if they, if, if you're born to rule it's destiny now it can be told then you're gonna you know sort of go through the long run you're, you're, you're gonna you're gonna you know survive in the end yeah and, and not let your artistry you know go down you know the twos because somebody's gonna make you're gonna take the money from you or whatever it is you know yeah, I mean, it's worth noting too, I guess that uh, this song kind of evolved somewhat from the riff that Vinny had, which also became Boys Are Gonna Rock, I think, on the first Vinnie Vincent solo album. Yeah. Again, I think this is a much better, much stronger song, which is uh, an argument for uh, 
the the genius of Gene and Paul to take what his ideas were and, and make them the most they could be. Well, I wonder if they never played it live because it does have so much to do. It sounds like a, a Who song very much. And I guess also if it's a lot of it is written by Vinny, maybe that's why they don't play it live. I mean, pick up your guitar and, and pray. I mean, that's a direct lift from a Who song. You know what I mean? Right. It's definitely a reference to Won't Get Fooled Again. Yeah. Get on my, your knees and pray. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Won't Get Fooled Again. Then again, too, I mean, if they had played, you know, on this tour, six songs from this record, I mean, they've kind of, you know, otherwise they'd just be like, you know, an evening of Lick It Up. You know? right. <laughs> it, 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 I mean, granted, they, they, they probably should have tried it. Maybe they did in rehearsal, but in a way it might have worked better than a song like Fits Like a Glover Young and Wasted had they, yeah. you know, swapped it out. I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's what bands are doing now is they're touring, playing their whole albums all the way through now. That is the trend. Yeah. Yeah. It's really uh, weird. So now I got to tell my Lick It Up story. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> so my mother was a Pittsburgh police officer. And as such, she was friends with the security people that worked uh, DC's or Angler Productions. And she arranged it you know, she said, hey, you know, my son and his friend are really big KISS fans and they would just love to come down and hang out the day of the show and, you know, maybe meet and do an interview with the band and, and watch the road crew set up and can you make that happen? And they said, yeah, sure, okay. Um, so, <laughs> wow. so we hung out the entire day with the road crew and then the road crew was like, you know, if you guys are hungry, feel free to get yourself a bite to eat. You know, we come back, just knock on the back door, we'll let you in. And so <laughs> we're like, all right, you know, we went, we got a bite, but we started getting nervous. Like we didn't want to be gone for too long because we were like, well, what if nobody's at the back door? Like, what if we can't find the same guy? Are they going to let us in? You know, so we like, we, you know, hightailed it back there. We got back in. They said, oh, you know, we hear you guys are, are you know, want to do an interview with the band and, and, and that kind of thing. And they said, yeah. And they said, well, we don't really know if, if that's going to happen, but, you know, tell you what, we'll, we'll see what we can do. Okay, and they said, you know, you guys just just hang out here and if we can make it happen, we'll send somebody, okay? And so we're, you know, they opened the doors to the show and it's like Dresden and people are pouring in and my friend and I were just kind of standing there hanging out going, well, okay, this has been really cool hanging out with the road crew, but I guess we're just, we're not gonna be able to meet the band or anything. And then this guy comes up to us and he says, hey, are you guys Mike and Dave? And he hands us these two backstage passes. And he says, here, take these and follow me. <laughs> he takes us backstage. I'm in seventh grade, right? I'm like 12, 13 years old. We go backstage. The first thing I see is Vinnie Vincent like walks right by me, you know. And I think Except had already played. I can't remember if this was before or after Except had played. Um, but the road manager comes up to me and he says, hey, would you guys like to see what it looks like from the stage looking out into the audience? And we go, yeah, <laughs> we sure would, <laughs> you know, and he goes, okay, here, follow me. So I don't know if this is before the first man went on or after, but we walk out onto the stage and there's the whole crowd, the place is packed. It's like 3,500 people. And we're just like, oh my 
God, you know. And then we go backstage again and they say, hey, would, would, you know, would you like to do the interview with Paul? And I go, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so Paul Stanley comes up and there I am. You know, I didn't have a tape recorder or anything. I just sent my brain on permanent record. And I did like a, a 10 question interview with him. And he, he couldn't have been any nicer or more down to earth. And the interview actually ended up getting published in um, the Canadian fanzine Firehouse that was done okay. by Ron Roxborough. And so we do the interview, we go back around and we, you know, come in, we had third row seats, John and everybody. And uh, really the experience of a lifetime uh, couldn't, couldn't have asked for a better day. So that was March 4th. It's become kind of like an informal holiday to me. You know, every March 4th, I kind of try to reassess my priorities and take the best leave the rest and march forth on forward to my life so if anybody listening out there wants to take that march forth as their own coincidentally the final kiss concert that mike and i went to march 4th of this end of the road tour so everything comes full circle never let people tell you that there isn't destiny in your lives That's, oh, my, that's, that's my story. story. <laughs> Damn. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, you know, it, it, that's magical. That kind of stuff, you know, doesn't happen that way, you know, that often or if ever for anybody. So that that's absolutely amazing. You know, they also to me, the power of people, you know, the fact that your mom, you know, knew somebody that knew somebody and, and it worked out and, you know, otherwise you'd been two little kids who've been brushed off and ignored and you yeah. know, thought enough to make that happen. So that's awesome. Yeah, that was super nice of Paul even to do that. Yeah, yeah, he was he was totally down to earth, totally cool. I couldn't have asked, you know, I mean, you know, they say never meet your heroes, but in this case, uh, I'm so glad that I did. Thank you for joining us. And next week we will talk about Animalize. <laughs>